Well, everybody had a good spring break and had some really nice weather, so uh, hope you're able to enjoy it. As we can st- uh, continue our study in the life and character of Joseph uh, this morning, I want to remind you of what I mentioned in the very beginning, and that is, although what we see in Joseph's life is important, what's most important is what God is doing in the life of Joseph. <laughs> Uh, what we see God's hand doing is the most important thing we can learn. And I think this is particularly true in our passage this morning. In fact, I believe what we learn about God in our passage this morning has significant relevance to the events that are happening even in our world today. Some have called this the year of elections. <laughs> this may be, this might surprise you, I know it did me, but... In addition to the fact that we will be electing our own president this year, there are actually 58 other countries in the world who will be doing the exact same thing this year. In fact, of those elections, they represent an influence of the population of over 53% of the world. (laughs) That's pretty amazing, isn't it? In addition to that, you have all the, the unsettled nature of things happening in our world with uh, the unrest in the Middle East, the, the war along the, the Gaza Strip, and this, this threat of a preeminent strike from Israel towards Iran and that nuclear threat that continues to exist. All those things combined tell us that this year will be a year, I think, that we won't soon forget. But I want you to know this, and, and we'll see it played out in our passage today, that every single detail of what is happening in our world today is happening within the realm of God's sovereign control. Each of these events has, in fact, been ordained by God in, in some way to carry out His kingdom plan on earth. And so as we read our passage this morning, I want you to appreciate the fact that, that God gives us through these verses a unique view kind of behind the curtain to see what he's doing to direct the affairs of man to carry out his purpose and plan. And as you observe what is revealed to us, I want you to keep in mind and to recognize that that same God is equally at work and equally present in every single detail of the events of our world today. As you think about that, I want you to view all of life through this perspective so that as you see things happening they're they're not just some random unconnected event but in fact they are a detailed orchestration designed by god as chip ingram might say to bring about the best possible ends by the best possible means for the most possible people for the greatest glory of god that's what's happening You'll see it unfold in our story of Joseph this morning. But understand, what you see happening then is still happening now. God at work, orchestrating the affairs of man to carry out his kingdom purposes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at that together. God, as we come and examine your word this morning, we trust that you gave it to us for the purpose of helping us see something about who you are that should impact our lives today. I pray in particular that through the passage that we will read this morning, we will be able to see and understand 
your sovereign control, how you orchestrate events to carry out your purpose and plan upon earth, ultimately to reveal your redemption, your salvation to mankind because of your great love and grace towards us. But I also pray that as we see that reality, that it would, in in, in ways that are important and significant to our heart, would motivate us to be used by you to reveal yourself to this world in which we live. That we would see ourselves as an integral part of what you're doing to carry out your purpose and plan, ultimately for your glory. God, that's our prayer, and we ask this in your name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. Let's pick up where we left off last. We, uh, last time we left Joseph, he was forgotten in a prison. And the one who promised to uh, help him out um, didn't carry through with that promise. And so let's see what happens next. Chapter 41, verse 1. It says, Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream... And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came, up from, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears of thin and scorched, uh, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. This passage tells us and then describes this dream that Pharaoh had, and he says that it troubled him. Now, as I'm reading this, and probably you are doing the same, you wonder, okay, this is probably not the first dream that Pharaoh's ever had, right? And so what was it that was so significant and troubling to him about this particular dream well one of the things that i think probably raised his level of concern was the presence of the nile river now we know that that was important because as you read the passage it mentions the nile river four times in the first three verses says that pharaoh came up from the nile the cows came out of the nile They then stood on the bank of the Nile. It's repeated time after time. You and I read that and we think, well, what's the big deal? The Nile is just a big old river. Well, that may be what it looks like from our perspective. But to the Egyptian people, the Nile was everything to them. It was, in fact, the source of their economic and social stability. Very literally, the Nile is what kept them alive. They even saw the Nile as a god in whom they would seek to find favor. And so when Pharaoh had a dream where the Nile is so prominent, he would have known immediately this is really important. 
And so he does what you might expect him to do. He goes to the men that apparently he's gone to before, these magicians and wise men. He doesn't select just one of them. He gets all of them to come. He knows this is important. And he says, here's my dream. They hear his dream, but they have nothing to offer. I'm sure they too appreciated the significance of what Pharaoh told them, but they didn't know what it meant. History tells us that these men had what were called dream books. And apparently in these dream books were the common figures that are often repeated in dreams. Things like the one that maybe you've had before where you show up to school in your underwear. I bet that one was in that dream book, right? You laugh, but actually you can go on the Internet into what they call a dream dictionary. And you can look up these kinds of dreams and they'll interpret them for you. With that particular dream, they'll tell you that you're somehow afraid of revealing your true feelings or you're self-conscious about something in your life, right? Well, apparently these magicians and wise men had a similar resource. But here's the problem. Pharaoh's dream wasn't in the book. And why is that? Why wouldn't it have been in the book? Here's why. That dream was a revelation from God. And those who do not trust in the Lord do not understand the things of God. It made no sense to them. And that's why. It's like Paul described in his first letter to the Corinthians when he said this. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this, not in wisdom taught by men, but that which is taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You see, the natural man does not understand or accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You see, only those who have the Spirit of God, understand the truths of God. Pharaoh and his magicians were in the dark because they did not live in the light of God's truth. Now, when you hear that, I want you to personalize it and realize the very same thing is true for you and I. We do not possess the ability in and of ourselves to understand the things of God. Scripture tells us that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. In fact, higher than the heavens are above the earth, right? So in the same way that it would be foolish me for me to to walk up to you and say, Carla, I know it's exactly what's on your heart because I have the ability to read your mind. (laughs) That would be silly. Equally as silly as you and I suggesting that We understand God's will for our life without ever having spent time in his word, being in his presence, and being led by his spirit. We simply cannot follow God unless we are being led by his spirit. 
we cannot understand the truths of God unless we are being led by His Spirit. No matter how hard we may try to do the right thing, Scripture makes it clear, apart from Christ, we can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. So often I think we try to navigate life by doing things on our own, by making decisions based on what seems right in our own eyes. But then we end up weary in our marriages. We're dissatisfied in our jobs and just generally unhappy with what life has to offer. In our frustration, oftentimes we can go to God and blame Him. But the fact of the matter is, we never really consulted Him in the first place. Now, we might have asked him to to bless our efforts, you know, the decisions that we made apart from him. But we never really took time to ask him first. To look at his word. To be in his presence. To be led by his spirit. No matter what you're facing in life, that is always, always a good place to start. Not only is it important for our personal lives, but... I believe what we'll see in our passage that follows is it is, in fact, the way God works in a way that he uses us to reveal who he is to the world around us. And and I want to point out what I believe to be four very clear ways in the remaining part of our passage that God works through the life of Joseph to reveal himself to the world in ways that are equally as applicable to us today. So let's look at that together. Look at verse 9, chapter 41, verse 9. It says, the chief cupbearer, you remember him, spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And we had a dream on that same night, he and I, each of us dreamed according to his own interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. And we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about just as he interpreted for us. So it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. In these verses, I believe we have an example of what God does to work in the lives of the people to reveal himself to the world. And the first example I believe we see in these verses is, is this, that God will often use our actions to convict the world of sin. God will often use our actions to convict the world of sin. You see, after two long years of silence, and remember we combined it together, this would have made 13 years that Joseph would have been in that dark dungeon of a prison. The cupbearer finally speaks up. And he literally says in the literal translation of those words, I must make mention of my sin. <laughs> this validates the point that I made last week that I, when I told you that I didn't believe that he had a mental lapse. <laughs> I believe it was a moral lapse. So here he speaks up and finally admits his mistake. He says, I didn't forget. I willfully neglected the promise that I made to tell you what happened. So then he goes on to explain what happened in detail. Not unlike Potiphar's wife, in the description of his story, he um, looks at Joseph and and describes him as a young Hebrew. He uses that same word, 
It's not quite the same derogatory sense in which Potiphar's wife used it, but it was intended to communicate that this nobody, a Hebrew, was actually somebody special. Despite the fact that he was a prisoner, he was elevated to the highest level of responsibility. And in that role, he was trustworthy. And he was humble. And he was a man of his word. And it was in the light of Joseph's integrity that the cupbearer's dishonesty was made visible. That's because God will often use our actions to convict the world of sin. We can talk about sin all we want to. We can confront others about their poor decisions. But our actions will always speak louder than our words. This seems to be Paul's point to the Ephesians when he writes to them, admonishing them to to be imitators of Christ. In order to do this, he then instructs them to avoid immorality and impurity and a number of other vices that would be inconsistent with the character of Christ. In verse 11, he then explains to them the effect of this godly living when he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And here's what he says. Because when anything is exposed by the light, it always becomes visible. You see, sin is made visible by the light of our godly lives. You see, after two years of silence... The cupbearer wasn't convicted because of something that Joseph said. He felt the weight of conviction in light of how Joseph lived. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that our words are unimportant, because I believe they are, but I think God may have a different purpose in mind when it comes to our words. I think we see that next in what happens with Joseph. Turn, if you will, and look at verse 14 with me. It says, Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and, and, and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Pharaoh goes on to describe the dream exactly like we saw in the first few verses of our passage this morning. See, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've had a dream and I understand you have an answer. Joseph then responds to Pharaoh and says, I don't have an answer, but I know someone who does. He wants him to know it's not in me. In fact, those were his words. Truth resides with God. Pharaoh had a problem. God had an answer. Joseph was the means by which that would be communicated. And often that's the way it works. Because another attribute of how God reveals himself to the world is that God will often use the words of his people to reveal his truth to the world. God will often use the words of his people to reveal his truth to the world. It's like Paul tells the Romans, how will they then call on him who they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear if someone isn't preaching? And please understand, he is not talking about what I do on Sunday morning. 
He is talking about what we all do every day of the week when we share the hope that is within us. That's what he's talking about. Because here's why. The world has a problem. God has an answer. And you are the messenger. You're the messenger. Now, some of you hear that, and you're starting to break out into a cold sweat already, right? You're, you're thinking about that responsibility, and you're, you're kind of like Moses. You have that long list of reasons why you're really not the best person for that job. You, you stumble over your words. You don't know the right things to say. But listen to how Paul simplifies it for us. In his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 1, he says this. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech, or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's Paul the Apostle who came in fear and trembling and weakness. He admitted that he had nothing to offer, that his message was not very articulate, but it was simple and clear. And it was this, For I am determined to know nothing more than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Here's why. The world has a problem. That is the answer. That's the answer. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because no man can find peace with God as long as sin remains the obstacle to that relationship. Because apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin. We are naturally inclined to rebellion. We are slaves to our sinful desires. That's the problem. The answer is found in Christ alone. As Colossians will tell us, it was he who made peace with the blood that he shed on the cross. And whose forgiveness we find through faith in him makes us blameless and holy before the throne of God. You see, if you are a child of God, that is your message. That's the hope that is within you. So speak boldly so that God can use the words of your mouth to declare his truth, simple and clear, to the world who has the problem of sin. Like Paul, determined to know nothing more than Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, for those who are burdened by sin, that's the answer. That's the answer. Let me remind you, as we talked about last week, that that message of truth must always be spoken of in love, right? I think we see that very evident in what Joseph does next. And so read with me, beginning in verse 25. It says, Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind shall be seven years of famine. It is 
as I've spoken to you, Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine. For it will be very severe. And now as for repeating the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. As you read this passage, you see the repetition of, of Joseph's words to Pharaoh. He says three times, God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then in verse 28, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then again in verse 32, God wants you to know, Pharaoh, that he will do what he said he will do. Hmm. Keep in mind that Pharaoh is a pagan king. He worships false gods. But notice the compassion with which Joseph speaks to him. It's as if he's saying, don't miss this, Pharaoh. God's hand is directing the affairs of man. And because he cares, he's giving you news to protect you. Listen to him. I really believe that Joseph is relating to Pharaoh in the same way that he has experienced God relating to him. Unmerited favor, undeserved mercy. And this is important because God will often use the compassion of his people to reflect his heart to the world. God will often use the compassion of his people to reflect his heart for the world. In fact, let me give you an exercise to do this week, if you would. It's really simple. Just take one word, the word compassion, and just look at the first four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you have a a computer program that will do this for you, just tell it to find all the times that word compassion is used in those four books of the Bible. And then go back and look at those occasions and see what's being said about that word. Let me give you a little help as you do that because this will give you a little appreciation for what that word means. The word you'll most often find translated as compassion in the Greek language is the word splonknesimo. (laughs) Isn't that a great word? Splonknesimo. The pronunciation of the word actually gives you a hint to its meaning. It literally means inward parts. (laughs) In other words, your gut, right? And so what it's trying to communicate in that word is that compassion is not just some superficial emotion. It is a deep felt motivation that moves someone to action. It's a deep, deep love that moves someone to action. More often than not, you will find that word being used to describe the compassion that Jesus has towards what he describes as those who are are sheep without a shepherd. For example, it says that moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand towards those who were demon-possessed. Moved with compassion, he healed the sick. Moved with compassion, he fed the hungry. Keep in mind that, that most of those who received his compassion never believed in who he was and what he came to do. Like Pharaoh, those who received God's compassion didn't necessarily do anything to earn his favor. That's because God's compassion is unmerited favor, also known 
as grace. And if that's who God is, then that's who we are called to be. There's an early Christian writer that said, Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. God will often use the compassion of his people to reflect his heart to the world. Look at verse 33 with me as we finish up our passage. It says, And now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let him gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. And let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish among the famine. Notice that Joseph respectfully advises Pharaoh in what he should do, but he never volunteers to carry out his own recommendations. Instead, he calls on Pharaoh to believe God first. Know that this is going to happen. And then he tells him to look for a trustworthy leader who will oversee these local administrators in the various cities who will exact a ration of 5% to store away grain for what is coming in those years of famine. You see, Joseph doesn't feel the need to force his way ahead of God. He trusts that God is the one who will make the way. I'm reading this, and and I'm thinking, I'm not sure I'd be able to do the same thing. If I'm Joseph, I've spent 13 years in a dark dungeon, and this is my opportunity to see the light of day. I'm giving Pharaoh the plan, and I'm being the first to volunteer and say, hey, if you're looking for anybody, I'm available, right? But if Joseph were to do that, where does the spotlight shine? On him. And who fades into the background? God. Joseph seems to understand that the fourth characteristic that I believe is evident in our passage, and it is this. God will often use the humility of his people to bring glory to his name. God will often use the humility of his people to bring glory to his name. Up until this point, Joseph has been very clear to explain to Pharaoh who was in control. He explained to him that he didn't have the ability to interpret his dream, but God does. He didn't have the ability to know what the future holds, but God does. He wasn't even the one who could preserve his life, but God would. By assuming this posture of humility, Joseph was ensuring that God was the one who would receive the glory. He wants Pharaoh to understand that deliverance only comes when we choose to put our trust not in the ability of man, but in the power of God. Joseph assumes this posture, like John the Baptist, that that I must decrease so that he can increase. He understands that, that my popularity and self-promotion is only 
a distraction to the glory of God. Because like we said earlier, and I think Joseph understands this, apart from him, we can do nothing. I've got nothing to offer apart from him. God will use the humility of his people to bring glory to his name. Now, I mentioned in the beginning how our passage gives us a unique opportunity to kind of peek behind the curtain, to to see God's hand of provision in the affairs of man. He, He reveals that plan of what he's about to do through a dream that he gives to Pharaoh. And Joseph is faithful to interpret that dream, having been led by the Spirit to do so. He admits up front, I don't have the ability, but God does, and he will give you that interpretation. I'm just the messenger. right? And then he exhibits for us what I believe are four attributes of how God works through his people to reveal himself to the world. And those are attributes that are equally as important and necessary and applicable to you and I today. Because in the same way, God can use our actions to convict the world of sin. How we live in our godly lives sheds light on the sin that is present in the world. It's not as much of what we have to say as it is in the integrity in how we live. But our words are still important because those are the words that we speak truth to the world that has an answer to the problem of sin in the world. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We are called to speak boldly that truth to the world around us. And God calls us to live a life of compassion in a way that reflects his heart to the world. That's the the other side of that, speaking the truth in love. And then finally, God will always use the humility of his people to bring glory to his name. Always bring glory to his name. Joseph was the man that God used in his day. But my prayer is that there are men and women in this place today that God would use equally so in the very same way. This is something I thought about as I considered what we would look at together this morning. There's an advantage that you have over Joseph. And it's this. You and I have more than a dream. You see... God told Joseph about things that were going to happen that would take place over the next 14 years, right? Seven years of abundance and and seven years of famine. And they happened exactly like he said they would. But do you know what you have? You have the testimony of the revelation of God that has taken place from the creation of the world all the way to the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. That's a whole lot more than a dream. That's a whole lot more than the next 14 years. It it describes for you what God has done in the past, what he is now doing in the present, and what, what he is yet to do in the future. You and I have so much more than a dream. And here's the other thing. Joseph was given the information necessary to save the then known world from a famine. One that they would not survive without that information, right? But you have the answer. You have the answer for how to save the world from the judgment of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. You have so much more than a dream. 
And so my encouragement to you and to me is that we live the life that Joseph demonstrated for us, that, that, that it is our actions that bring conviction to sin, that we are committed to those godly lives in ways that God might use it to shed light so that people can see the problem, so that then you can speak the truth in love and give them the answer, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But do it in such a way that your compassion reflects the heart of God and with humility in a way that glorifies God. You have more than a dream. Joseph was faithful to steward what God had given him. May we be faithful to steward what God has given us, which is so, so much more. Now, I want you to know that as I look at the events that are happening in our world today, I believe they are unprecedented events. I believe that this is a unique year in the unique grand scheme of what God is doing, and I think His time is coming soon. I really, really do all the more reason for us to live the lives that God has called us to because we have the answer to the problem that so many in our world are burdened by. So speak boldly. Live godly. Be humble and glorify God in your love and compassion towards others. Let's pray. God, thank you for such a wonderful, beautiful description of how you work in the lives of people. And I I say that, and I'm amazed that those words even come out of my mouth, that, that the creator of the universe would condescend in such a way that he would be one of us to reveal himself through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, to be that visible payment of of death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and and then call us with that most precious treasure to to, to steward that and to carry it, to, to give that message of hope to the world. Father, help us to be faithful to you as Joseph was, to not force our way ahead of you, but to trust you, to believe that there is something that you've called us to for a purpose of which you are now fulfilling, and we believe that it is soon that you are coming. Oh, glorious day that will be. Thank you for your gift. We have more than a dream. We are richly blessed. Amen.